Welcome to this episode of the Animal Chat Podcast with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matthew Payne. Hello, Harry. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you very much. How the devilish are you? The devil, I'm fine. Absolutely fine. How are you? I don't know if you've been reading in the news lately about this, um, this like this pandemic going on and stuff. I just wondered if you've been affected by it at all. Have you heard about it? Have you read about it? It's a thing. Pandemic? What do you mean? I read something in the news the other day. The coffee thing. <laughs> the co- is that why you is that why you started that mask business recently? Yeah, Harry's masks. Harry's masks. Yeah, couldn't think of a better name. No, you couldn't. How's the mask thing where you are? I mean, it is mask. It's not mask, but anyway, you are. Suffering. No, it's mask. It's mask. No, it's mask. Well, anyway, us Northerners invented the English language, just so everyone out there, our listeners in Bolivia, know. Um, That's not true. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. But how are things going up in Scotland with all the new restrictions and all the crap going on? Well, let me sum it up very briefly for you, Harry. Mm -hmm. What happened was the government were getting on top of things. They were reveling in the fact that Scotland was doing better than England, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And then something amazing happened, something unexpected, something that there's no way you could in any world envisage students went back to uni and what happened was all the students went back to uni and didn't pay attention to the rules and now i'm in lockdown again so um that's what's happened in glasgow yeah Yeah. but the problem with scotland is you're telling us not to drink oh that's like telling a fish not to swim exactly do you know what i mean yeah but what about you 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 what, what about what about you in good old Portugal? We're in... I, I love Cristiano Ronaldo. Are you thinking by name checking him, you're going to get like a t-shirt or something? I've tried. Or is that the only thing you know about Portugal? I love Luis Figo. <laughs> um, you're on Wikipedia now, aren't you? Uh, well, Famous things about Portugal. I like that big yellow bus that goes all the way up that steep bit in. <laughs> Lisbon. I tell you what. I tell you something about Portugal though that I found very interesting. Um, wow, you've got a lot of Iberian lynxes over there. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I'm trying to think about things in Portugal that I know, <laughs> and I don't know much. What are you famous for? What are we famous for? Uh, discovering quite a lot of the world, actually. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, we here were we the go. first country that circumnavigated the globe. Oh, wow. Magellan or Magellan or however they choose to pronounce it here, which probably isn't Magellan or Magellan. Well, I mean, I'm British, so, you know, the less we talk about colonialism, probably Well, and to be honest, the way you pronounce things, it doesn't really matter anyway. (laughs) So, Harry, um, is Cristiano Ronaldo wearing a mask? Tell me. Yes, he is. And most people in Portugal are wearing masks because most people in Portugal are actually being quite sensible about it. Despite that, the figures are going up here as they are everywhere else. And I think... Really? Yeah, I think the level of infection here is is at the highest rate that it's been since the start of the pandemic. So that's kind of mirroring a lot of other countries. But, I mean, I suppose from an Animal Chat podcast point of view, we should do a public service announcement which I think is really quite simple, which is wear a fucking mask. Just wear a mask. It's not difficult, is it? Right, I'll tell you something, Harry. I have asthma, okay? And I wear a mask. It's not easy. Like, I know people mock people with asthma. I'm, I am an asthmatic and I wear a mask and it is hard. I get out, of, like, it can be quite difficult, but I wear it because I don't want to die and I don't want to give it to other people and compromise their health. What so, if you die of um, asthma, though? If I die, imagine me, I'll probably die choking on a mask, no matter my look. 
Oh, God. Um, but yeah, anyway, so that's the public service announcement, ladies and gentlemen, from the Animal Chat podcast. You're welcome. Wear a mask. Unless the mask is like a skinned beaver <laughs> and you're wrapping it, <laughs> then don't wear that one. No, don't wear that one. Don't wear that mask. Now, Harry. Matt. We had a somebody this week, very kindly on social media, Madison O'Connell. Hello, Madison. Hello, Madison. She's a producer. She put us down as one of the podcasts to listen to when it comes to whale and dolphin captivity issues. Wow. I mean, she, she put a load of shite on there, you know, like other podcasts. You don't need to listen to them. But our episode with Lauren Marino and Louis Sohoyas. That's very cool. Yeah, I know. On that note, go back. We've got some amazing guests that are on the Animal Chat. So if this is the first time that you're joining us. Welcome. But we have got some amazing episodes I mean, Harry, imagine you loved wolves. Is there an episode for you on our podcast? Yes, there is. There is an episode. Who's it with? (laughs) (laughs) We have an episode with David Meech, one of the world's leading experts on wolves and wolf ecology. Do you like leaves and eating carrots? (laughs) Do I like leaves? Yeah, because we've got an interview with a sloth. Yeah, we've got lots of people that want you to eat leaves and that, uh, <laughs> vegans and that. Um, we've got, I mean, Harry, do you hate cetaceans in captivity? Bloody hate it. Well, guess what? We've got episodes about that. Laurie Marino, Louis Sahoyas, Charles Vinnick. We've got episodes about tigers, lions, bears. Dogs and cats. Oh, my God. They're everywhere. Think of an animal, Matt. Think of any animal. Tell me what animal you're thinking of. Uh, dogs in Chernobyl. Dogs in Chernobyl. We got a podcast that talks about dogs in Chernobyl. No, yeah, we do. Brian Faulkner. Think of another one. Um, moon bears. Oh my goodness. We have got not one but two podcasts that talk about moon bears. We got the one with Jill Robinson. When's the other one coming out, Harry? It's this episode. Oh, we are so good at this. And that, folks, that is the sort of link you've come to expect with this number one animal chat podcast. This week's guest is none other. Than the annoyingly good-looking David Neal. It is Dave Neal. Dave Neal from Animals Asia, Animal Welfare Director of Animals Asia. And everyone knows how much you and I love Animals Asia, don't they? Fantastic organisation. And I'm going to say several weeks ago, but in podcast world, it could have been an hour ago when you just last listened to it. But we have the (laughs) episode with Jill Robinson. And now this follow-up episode with Dave Neal. So Dave is talking all about his journey in animal welfare, having moved from ecology and conservation into animal welfare in the north of England, and then just traveling the world, found out about all of the horrible things that go on in Asia in particular, Uh, not exclusively, but he was traveling in Asia. And then... And coming from a northerner, that's, you know... Says something. Yeah, absolutely. Says something. And then he talks about meeting Jill and getting in touch with Animals Asia and basically the journey that that started him on, working and setting up the UK office for Animals Asia and then moving into the campaigns that he works on now with zoo animals and animals in captivity and the incredible educational work that he does as well. Yeah, and how he works very closely with people in order to bring around change. Absolutely. We have some really interesting conversations about that. That was my, my dog. I don't know if you picked that up. I did. Yep, barking away. Um, so, yeah, we, he has some really, we have some really interesting conversations about working, listening, and collaborating with people on all sides of a debate and the difficulties with that and how the importance of 
working with stakeholders and essentially human behavior change. So it was a fantastic conversation. It was a real pleasure to, to get to talk to Dave. And should we just... Let's just start it, shall we? Yeah, let's just start it. So this is the Animal Chat Podcast with Dick Neal. were an ecologist before you were involved in animal welfare weren't you but was your interest that got you into this line of work was it conservation and ecology or was it animal welfare where did that all kind of start from I suppose you know if I look back when I was very young then it was all about animals my childhood was all about having animals and caring for animals and wanting to be somebody that looked after animals in some way and then I suppose as I kind of went into finishing school and and going into university I think looking back now If there was the range of courses which are now available, you know, animal behaviour, even, you know, direct animal welfare courses which are available now at university, then I would have gone straight into that and I'd have gone down that line. But none of that was available. This was back in sort of uh, 1990. I was in university 91 to 94. And the only real courses that were available then, which were anything like that, were ecology and environmental courses. So that's kind of why I think... I kind of was steered into that just because that was what was available. And then that led me down a a slightly different path, which I thought for a while was was okay. I did a a degree in um, environmental management and then a master's degree in conservation biology and then started work after that on a river restoration project, which was mainly looking at uh, habitat surveys and species-specific surveys and and then sort of working with various agencies on river restorations uh, up in in the northwest of England. And yeah, all very much conservation-based. But my passion was always still with animal welfare, as in, you know, I, at the same time, I was still volunteering at local animal shelters. And, and even then, I was still kind of looking for a way into animal welfare more so than than the sort of ecology and environmental route. And the real kind of point which I made that decision that I would make the change was because of what I was asked to do with my work in conservation. So I led a, a survey of a river called the River Alt in Merseyside, which um, it was a survey for water voles. And so I did a catchment survey myself and volunteers of pretty much the, the whole of the River Alt catchment to see where these water voles still were and where they weren't and reasons for why they were not where they previously were. And the reason was because of mink populations. So we were finding that there was, you know, there was increasing numbers of mink on these river catchments and they were driving down the numbers of the water vole. And of course, then the, the obvious sort of next step after coming to the to finishing these reports and submitting them to the wildlife trust etc was that there would be a, an eradication program of the mink and that was the point when i realized that this just wasn't me you know this just wasn't what i was about mm-hmm. and you know i was i was now stuck in a kind of a situation where my work was having a direct impact on an individual animal because it would lead to 
animals being killed, mink being trapped and killed, because we see the waterfowl as a, as a species which is more worthy than the mink that were now in this area. And so I was out. I just couldn't do it. I didn't particularly make a big fuss about it. I just knew it was time for me to leave that particular job. And it was also time for me to say, you know, I'm not going to make a conservation biologist because of this very reason. I, I couldn't put that kind of population above the individual. And so, yeah, that's kind of where that transition was made. And I ended up actually leaving that job and going traveling just to find what it was I, I really wanted to do. But I knew from then that I needed to get out of conservation in that sense. Did you have an idea before that, though? I'm curious, as you took the the conscious choice to study ecology because you wanted to get a qualification, a degree in something that at least was animal welfare adjacent or or transferable Mm. or something that would serve you later on. But did you have in the back of your head an idea of what it was that you wanted to do? Was there a particular species or an issue or a country or, or an area of work? Or were you very open to just kind of seeing what would be out there if you pursued a certain path? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really have a, a, you know, a very kind of like um, idea of this is what I want to do in this country or whatever it was. I suppose the one thing that I was exposed to and the one thing which troubled me was actually animals in captivity. So I didn't know enough about it. I know a lot more about it now, obviously, than I did then. And But I was troubled by the fact that locally to us, in you know, we had some poor zoos and the zoo issue sort of in the 80s and 90s was, you know, in, in the UK was obviously a lot different to what it is now and there was a lot of information about poor welfare in in zoos so that was kind of an issue which concerned me which actually kind of when I did decide to to leave and go traveling was an issue which you know I sort of picked up on because you know instantly I was like well I'm going to travel to all these countries as just as a tourist but you know I also want to go and see what the situation is for animals in the zoos in these countries as well so as part of this kind of travel you know I was in India and visited the zoo in Delhi and and Mumbai and etc etc and so so I suppose it was that I didn't really have a conscious thing like that was what I was going to do but I was kind of led myself down that road I guess. Mm. Out of interest Dave What were the issues in captivity at that time in the 80s and 90s? I think, interestingly, and it probably is why it sort of led me to work on this issue within China and Vietnam, in that I can make direct comparisons with the situations in some of the zoos in in Asia now with what it was like in the UK back in the sort of 80s and 90s, where from some of the smaller zoos in particular, the level of knowledge about animal management was obviously lacking. And there was still a lot of the use of sort of concrete enclosures, that kind of classic, easy to manage, easy to clean enclosures where, you know, animals literally just had very little of any kind of natural landscape or or any abilities to be able to sort of carry out any of those natural behaviours. We had a particular zoo near to us in Coventry, which was famous because it had the, and this is showing my age now, it had the Esso Tigers. (laughs) Esso, the company, used tigers in their adverts. And we had the tigers in Coventry Zoo. And so everyone flocked there. And I remember going there and just seeing how horrendous the conditions for these tigers were. And yet people couldn't see it. Now, you know, that closed down a long time ago. But the conditions for those tigers was literally concrete enclosures with them pacing up and down. And those are the conditions that you now see in other places around the world, including some of the work that were done in China and Vietnam. So you're sort of like looking at what the conditions were here in the UK 40 years ago. It's still very much sort of evident in certain places within Asia. And we still had quotations in the 90s, I believe, in captivity. I mean, it was never banned, was it? They just set regulations that were so incredibly unrealistic that no zoo or aquarium could ever match them. 
and again, that's an issue now, which I work on in China in particular, because it's become such a huge issue within China. But it's interesting to see that, you know, the public opinion changed quite rapidly for keeping cetaceans in captivity in, in the UK and, and has done in other places. Yet we're seeing the opposite of that in China at the moment. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? There's a burgeoning middle class in China and they are just throwing up aquariums and entertainment parks like SeaWorld versions that that sort of demand has now shifted from in the 70s and 80s from America or Europe into now to China in particular. It is, yeah, and it's and it's such a huge issue. I mean, I, I started looking into it. The work that I've done in China in terms of looking into the, the zoos and the safari parks started back in probably about 2008, 2009. And at that time, there were a handful of ocean parks. Here we are, what, 10 years later, and there are over 100 and 130, I think, or something now with, you know, I think another 30 or 40, which are in construction. And, you know, every city across China now has them. We've been tracking the numbers of animals which have been coming in of all the cetacean species. You know, the numbers are they're just skyrocketing. Over the last few years, then orcas have started to be brought in. So there are, I think, 15 orcas in China at the moment. Yeah. Um, not all of them on public display, but there's one place in the, the Shanghai polar ocean world has got the only ones which are on public display. But yeah, the trend is obviously in completely the opposite to what it is everywhere else around the world. You're working extensively in China and you just got to read social media comments to get the feeling that there's a real villainization of China that I see permeate a lot of comments on social media when you talk about issues, everything from animals in captivity to dolphinariums to the dog meat trade to things like that. But also there's incredibly progressive work going on in China as well. And I'm curious, as somebody that does a lot of work there, how do you see the situation from where you're standing and from the work that you do, but also kind of recognizing that and this is just my impression, but China, I get the feeling, doesn't respond particularly well to international pressure, but it's not <laughs> like it doesn't register because from what I've seen over the last few years, for example, shark finning, there was a huge outcry, shark finning, shark finning, ban shark finning, China didn't do anything. And then when nobody's looking, they did something about it. And so it's almost kind of like, we'll do it, but we'll do it on our own terms when we're ready. It's not like we haven't noticed it. Is that a fair impression of the situation? Yeah, I think so. I, I agree with you that if you look at the media, then yeah, everybody's kind of attacking China and, and things which are happening there. And yes, you know, some of it is, is right. There's a huge number of issues which are happening within the country. But the change which has happened within China, particularly I've been working there for nearly 20 years, mm. is astronomical in terms of people's opinions about animals and the grassroots organizations which have grown up within China, which are looking, you know, which are targeting specific issues is now, you know, incredibly strong. There are, there are hundreds and hundreds of local animal welfare groups which are working on all kinds of issues, both on a national level, but also in the local areas as well. The actual landscape is a lot different to what we see and what we hear about. Mm. There is a lot of respect for animals within China and, and a lot of people that disagree with many of the things that we kind of see in the press. Unfortunately, that hasn't sort of progressed towards the legal situation as rapidly as we'd like it to. But it, it doesn't mean to say that, you know, the public opinion isn't certainly on side of, of the animals. It, mm. it very much is in, in many cases. And I think 
that's a difficult thing to kind of get across because, you know, I know from the early years when I started working for Animals Asia, I was involved in really just promoting Animals Asia in the UK for about five or six years. So I spent most of my time just visiting the projects that we had in China and, and then coming back and giving presentations and trying to sort of organize fundraising and things like that and trying to get the media interested. And it was very easy to visit China, take a bunch of pictures, come back and get them in the newspapers in the UK, because that is just something that people were like, this is horrendous, this is happening a long way away, you know, this is awful. But to go there and then sort of come back with positive news stories, mm. nobody wanted to hear about it. You know, the media didn't, weren't interested in the fact that there were people on the streets that were actually supporting what we were there trying to do, or, you know, that people were setting up their own organizations and rescuing dogs and cats and etc and it's still the same now it's very difficult to get that sort of positive side out in terms of what's happening within china i mean i think for people that have no idea about what's happening in china and kind of think you know it's just this sort of area where there's no hope or there's nobody that cares it's just like every other country has got this kind of huge movement of people and organizations and and that goes from the grassroots through to you know the scholars and the legal profession that are working hard every single day to improve animal welfare within the country and obviously the hope being that it will push the government at some point to enact better legislation yeah, that's interesting. Bringing it back to you, I suppose, Dave, where did you decide to visit and what were the motivations behind that decision to, to go to that particular part of the world? Initially, it was just one of those things of sort of like, well, let's just do a, a trip and, you know, visits. We went to India and went to Nepal, we spent some time in Thailand and Malaysia, and then also spent some time in, in South America as well. So it was a kind of split. There wasn't any particular decision. And whilst being there, obviously, then, you know, we could maybe do some good in terms of just kind of documenting some of the things that, that we see on the trip. I suppose the one country which I wanted to visit because I was just so interested in it more than anywhere was Vietnam. But it was also Vietnam was actually the country which ended up being the reason why I got involved with Animals Asia. So it was actually being in Vietnam, I ended up seeing a bear which was in a cage on the street in a place called Ninh Binh and was just like shocked you know I was kind of I was naive I guess in terms of like you know how could it be possible that there was a fully grown adult bear in a cage here you know I knew there was animals in sort of roadside not really roadside zoos but they're sort of like there was animals caged in service stops so there might be bears and macaques like a tiny little zoo and, and a few birds and things like that but this one was actually just on the path and I ended up talking to the owner of the hotel that I was staying at and he just said, oh, yeah, they're being transported. It's being sent to a bear farm. And again, that kind of opened my eyes to something I knew nothing about. You know, it's like, what's bear farming? You know, I, I didn't know anything about this. And so being in Vietnam kind of was a bit of a moment for me because then suddenly it was like, well, this is just not right. How can you have bears being transported, being left on the side of the road where someone's going to pick them up and send them to these farms? And so, yeah, even though there wasn't sort of a, like, I want to go and do something about this issue in this place, it ended up kind of Vietnam being that kind of pivotal place whilst I was traveling, which led me then to learn about bear farming, which led me then to be introduced to Jill Robinson, who'd set up Animals Asia. And then obviously things went from there. That's really interesting because there's so many people that travel and get confronted by horrific things that they either knew about but weren't prepared to admit or weren't expecting. I think we've all been in a situation where we've been contacted by somebody who says, oh, I was traveling here. I went here. I saw something horrible. What can I do? 
And the difference between that feeling of helplessness when you've been away on holiday and witnessed something, as opposed to the situation that you were in, which was seeing something and going, right, okay, I'm in a position where this has affected me. What can I actually do about this? And so you said you got in touch with Animals Asia and Jill. And so how did that evolve and progress from there? Yeah, well, when I set off for traveling, then because I knew I was going to go and visit various zoos, I was in touch with Born Free and said, look, are you interested in receiving information? You know, I'm going to be in these places anyway. I'm just traveling there and just I've got some time there. And they were like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you visit these zoos, then send us some photos or, Mm -hmm. you know, send a report back or whatever you wanted to do. So it was from that when I was in Vietnam and saw this bear, I contacted Born Free and said, do you know anything about this? You know, I'm, I'm hearing about bear farms, etc. And they was actually, it was actually them that put me in touch with Jill because Virginia McKenna is a patron for Animals Asia mm-hmm. and Animals Asia had set up 1998 so this was now 2000 2001 so it was still very early on in animals asia's days Hmm. and that was how it kind of led me to jill and to say what can i do about this and initially then for her it was like well we need support back in the uk because we just set up the uk charity and so and i was obviously coming back to the uk and, and so i kind of just said okay well i'll i'll have a go at that i have no background in sort of communications and fundraising but you need somebody on the ground there you haven't got anybody and i'm willing to at least kind of give it a go and be a spokesperson for animals asia mm. because i kind of feel like i've got an idea of about what's happening here and can speak passionately about it And so that was it, really. I just kind of came back and then started from scratch pretty much in the UK with a very sort of small supporter base, trying to just be out there, just talking to people about what it was that Animals Asia was and what we were trying to do and building up that supporter base. And so that ended up being sort of nearly six years of work until I got to the point where I realised that I was no longer the best person to do that because I don't have that kind of background in fundraising and communication. I'd done a good enough job, but it now needed to go to another level, which I couldn't really take it to, Hmm. which was why then I kind of went back then to the idea of being more involved in campaigns, which is ultimately what I was more interested in, I suppose, than, Hmm. than actually sort of continuing along the sort of communications and fundraising side of things. I suppose now would be a really, for people that don't know about it, what do bear farms look like? Why do they exist? What is the issue, Dave? Jill is definitely the person and the expert to talk to you about it in the detail that you're looking for. But yeah, just sort of succinctly then, the farming of bears is for the production of their bile, which is then used in various medicines. And it comes in different forms within different countries, but essentially it's taking bile from a live bear through either through an injection into the gallbladder or through an open fistula which then extracts this bile and then that's obviously then processed and as you can imagine just by saying that that you can kind of just get an idea of you know to access these animals obviously they need to be kept in very very confined conditions and then you've got also the issues of actually taking a substance out of an animal in the way that it does which is obviously going to cause a huge amount of both physical suffering but also obviously the psychological suffering of living within the conditions that they're kept within. It's one of the most horrendous ways to keep an animal that I think anybody has ever really seen. And um, unfortunately, it's something which still goes on today, both within China and still within Vietnam. And, and say so you're talking with 
Jill Robinson, who's going to tell you much more about what we're doing to, to end it in both of those countries. But um, fortunately, in Vietnam, we're coming to a point where we know it will end. But yeah, in China, then, you know, we're still up against quite a challenge to, to actually bring it to an end. What are the numbers in Vietnam and China? In China, we're in the thousands, we're well over 10,000 there. Within uh, Vietnam now, we're looking at somewhere around 600 bears. Mm. The numbers are much more manageable within Vietnam than they are within China. We'll probably end up saying at the end of every single question or answer, <laughs> we're going to speak to Jill, but my curiosity just cannot, I can't help myself. And also, you know, <laughs> you know, we know that people listen to every episode of our podcast. And if they don't, why not? Yeah, why not? Have a really long, hard look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> the two main questions for me on that Dave is why did they do this and also how does it affect wild populations is there a link there are wild bears caught in order to supply the farms or is there a breeding program within the farms it's done mainly as a as a medicine and there's all kinds of ailments that it's supposedly helps to to treat and the active ingredient is within it is ursodeoxycholic acid udca which is something which has been proven to have some medicinal benefits but also can be synthesized and can be extracted from various herbs rather than coming from animals so there there's an alternative there but in terms of the wild population then actually Bear farming was actually set up as a sort of a conservation tool, for want of a better word, I guess, in that the bears were being killed in the wild and still are to have their gallbladders removed so that this bile could then be used within medicinal products. And so the move really was to actually say, well, if we farm bears, then, you know, the wild population would be left alone. You know, so again, looking at that kind of mix between conservation and animal welfare, if there's a pure conservationist that wasn't at all concerned about the individual animals, you could actually say, well, yes, this is something we would support because you breed animals in captivity, the wild population get left alone, the wild population increase in size, and you still have your product. As you can imagine, in reality, then that just doesn't work out that way. So the, the numbers in the wild continue to go down because there's an illegal capture from the wild to supply the captive farming situation. And so the conservation argument just doesn't really stand up anymore. Going back to something that you said before, Dave, when you started working and developing Animals Asia UK. Something that I thought was really interesting about that is that for those of us that work with different organizations, one of the limiting capacity of so many organizations is that whole communication fundraising strategy view of things. And anybody that gets into animal welfare doesn't immediately go, oh, I'm interested in animal welfare, so I'm going to start fundraising and do strategy mm. and communications and marketing because that's not why we get into this. And so for you to consciously make that choice and see the long-term benefit of it, how did you rationalize that choice? Because obviously by doing that, it did kind of take you away from the hands-on actual work that maybe you, you wanted to do to make that choice and go, for now, this is what needs to be done. Like, how did you feel about doing that? What was the thought process in that? I think you're right. I mean, it wasn't what I wanted to kind of do every single day. And there are people out there that that is what they want to do. Whereas for me, it was more like I want to be on the ground and I want to be doing the stuff which I'm now doing, sort of managing projects which are 
not directly involved in managing animals and improving animal welfare. But I knew that the potential that we had within Animals Asia, one, to be able to expand into some other areas, which I could get more involved in, but also just being so committed to working with Jill, I guess, you know, Jill, she's an incredible person and, and just has this way about her, which people just want to work with her. And that was the same with me, I guess. You know, I got involved and obviously met with Jill and then spent some time with her and could just feel that passion was the same as I felt it, I guess, for individual animals and wanted to do something to initially kind of help Jill to do the work that she was doing better. And then as I got sort of integrated into it, then just knowing that I could then also do more within Animals Asia and and sort of expand outside of our work with bears with Jill's support. I think um, a lot of us within Animals Asia, you know, would say the same. We were kind of drawn into the organisation, one by the cause, but also by Jill as a person and just wanting to be around Jill and just liking the way that she operates and the way that she deals with the issues herself and just feeling that kind of passion for the individuals that she does and her bringing that out in us, I guess, you know, Mm. as people working within the organisation. I suppose looking back, and it wasn't really something I thought about at the time, but that's probably why I ended up sticking for so long, doing something which wasn't directly what I was hoping to do, knowing that it was supporting Jill in what she was doing and that I knew Jill wanted to do more than just the bears. I don't kind of mean it like that, but she she wanted to be tackling some of the other issues if possible as well within Asia. And so I was always aware that at some point that was going to be a possibility. You mentioned that you, you were able to focus on campaigning when the Animals Asia UK had a a foundation where you felt more comfortable to move on to focusing more on campaigning. What sort of campaigns did you work on in the UK to help Animals Asia in Asia? What was happening within Animals Asia as we were beginning to get a bigger supporter base was that we were getting more people coming to us with more issues, as as all organisations do. And one of the issues that people were beginning to pick up on was the situation for animals in zoos within China. And so there was a lot of people that were now travelling within China and they were seeing things for themselves, they were visiting the zoos or they were visiting the circuses or whatever, and then coming to us and saying, what could we do about it? And at the time, we didn't really have anything that we could do other than the usual kind of, you know, right to this organisation or right to that organisation. And so it was a bit of a sort of like we need an area of our work which is outside of our bears that is beginning to look into these issues a little bit more so we know a little bit more and we can be a little bit more informed when we're talking to people about it. And then, you know, maybe we can actually do something positive to influence these situations. And so that was really what we were getting. We already had another programme within Animals Asia which was looking specifically at dogs and cats. And that was already well established. But in terms of wild animals, then we didn't really have anything outside of the bear farming. And so I then was given this role to investigate really within China what the situation was. And I spent between sort of 2009, 2011, 12, most of that time traveling within China, visiting zoos and visiting circuses and just documenting everything that was going on. And that was sort of like a campaign which was built then around what we found to actually say, well, this is something which we can have an impact on, you know, and we could work on this in some way. But obviously, working within China, there's a lot of sensitivities because it's the same with the bears. All of these industries are legal industries. So you you can't sort of do work that you might do, say, campaigning in the UK against circuses or campaigning against poor welfare in zoos because you just 
won't be able to stay in China to do that. So you kind of have to find ways of doing it, which is much more acceptable. And that obviously then means really dialogue and actually just trying to approach the people that are involved in these industries. And that's always been the way with Animals Asia in that we've always wanted to not just to be there and criticise and say how terrible this is, Mm. but actually try to find some common ground and find a a way of sitting down with people and hopefully finding some solutions. And, And so my work led from sort of initially visiting and doing that crawl of Chinese zoos and safari parks and circuses it kind of then led into, well, what can we now do about this and where do we take this information? And we took it initially to the institutions themselves. And I have some really bizarre meetings where we met with circuses that had no real idea of why we were meeting with them. They kind of agreed to it because it was a bit of a strange thing. And the you know the owners of the circuses and the zoos would accommodate us and invite us in and we'd sit down and we'd be drinking tea. And yet they didn't really have this understanding of exactly what it was we were there for. And, and that came to light when I found most of them would end up taking us to go and see the animals. So we'd go into these basements in in some cases where you know there were caged lions and tigers and bears and macaques all obviously you know incredibly stressed and in awful conditions and yet that wasn't being hidden from us you would think if you're there to sort of campaign to close something down or you're opposing something then the one thing you would do is not show people the one thing that they're there to, to accuse you of yet they would take us into these situations and almost ask for our help in that we were maybe here to sort of say how they could do things better, if that makes sense. And I think that was just at a time that there wasn't anybody in China that was really opposing these things. So nobody really knew in terms of the owners of the circuses and the zoos. They didn't really know any better in terms of, oh, well, don't show these people the conditions because they can then use that against Mm. us. It was more like, well, somebody here seems interested and he's worried about our animals let's take him and see whether he can give us some advice on how we can look after them a bit better so it was a kind of a strange time and it led to a lot of strange meetings where you know i ended up backstage literally face to face with tigers and bears obviously they were enclosed but in quite relatively dangerous situations which was quite bizarre and not wanting to get into this discussion about how you could improve welfare for these particular animals too much, but also not wanting to ignore the fact that some of these animals' welfares could be improved quite easily just by sort of saying, well, you know, maybe this should happen here or that should happen there could actually improve these animals' lives quite considerably in the short term. So, yeah, what that then did was it kind of led us into a situation where people within the zoos and industries were very much like, well, This person, as in me and the organisation Animals Asia, they're not there opposing us. They're not telling people not to come and there with their placards or whatever. They're actually, they're an organisation that we can engage with. And that then led us to the, what was the China Zoo Association, which is a government body which oversees most of the zoos within China and led us to discussions with them. And that was where things became very productive in this issue, because what we found then through having the initial meetings with the Zoo Association was once we'd got some trust with the Zoo Association, that they then kind of started to open up to us and say, actually, we want to end the circuses which are inside the zoos, and we want to improve the way that the Chinese zoos operate, because they could see that internationally, the use of animals in entertainment in zoos was beginning to be phased out. So by being open to these discussions and meetings, it worked in our favour. And we've had a good relationship now with the Zoo Association for a long time. And that actually led to 
a directive being issued by the ministry which oversees all the zoos back in 2011 instructing the zoos not to have circuses now it's a directive it's not a law many of the zoos followed that some of them didn't there's not really a mechanism to kind of follow up on it was more this is something which is not being supported by the government now if you're a zoo you should no longer have circus animals within your facility and so that was the real start of the change within china i guess in that the zoos were actually standing up and actually saying no we're no longer going to do this and that then kind of opened the door for us to work with them more constructively on some of the other areas which are happening within the zoo in terms of animal management that's so important i think dave it's such a key message that i think escapes a lot of people is that you can be against something whether it be zoo animals or whatever the particular welfare or rights issue is you can be absolutely against it but you still have to work with the people that are involved in it because on the route to getting to the point where something doesn't exist anymore there's all of these stages of improving welfare. And it doesn't mean that you can't campaign on the end result, but to have those dialogues and those engagements with the people that are actually in control and have a say and are the relevant stakeholders and keep that dialogue in a way that is open is really the only way that you can achieve these kinds of things. And I think it's something that Animals Asia excels at. Yeah, I think so. And it's it, again, it's kind of been Jill's way of working and Jill's vision of, of the organisation and the people that work within it, I guess. And, you know, we've all kind of learned from that. And yeah, we do. I mean, you know, we've maintained good relationships with the Zoo Association. Then, you know, we were always kind of very clear about where our position stood in that we weren't there to improve the welfare for circus animals. We were there to try to say these circuses needed to close down. But also, you know, we wanted to work with the zoos in some way to actually look at how the zoos could become better zoos, I guess, in terms of what they represented. And actually, you know, the situation in China now, I mean, it's still very, very mixed because there's still a lot of these very small city zoos, which are terrible, which really do need to close down. But the bigger zoos now, such as the Beijing Zoo and Shanghai Zoo, Chengdu Zoo, you know, they've changed an awful lot. And we've played a small part within that in terms of influencing the Zoo Association. And that in itself then opened up the doors to, to be able to sort of say, OK, well, let's bring in various people who have worked in zoos and worked in animal welfare improvement in zoos for many years to actually work with staff in various zoos on issues and we've held all kinds of animal management workshops for elephants and chimpanzees and giraffes and general kind of behavior management enrichment workshops now across China and we're seeing the rewards of that in the zoos themselves in terms of the improvements in animal welfare. You might not be able to answer this but finding common ground. I, lo I love that phrase that you used. Why do you think that's easier for some people than others? Were there, was there a particular reason why you felt like you were able to go into those circuses and you went in and listened and, and reported and found out what the drivers and barriers and what the issues were? I think we all would know there are people that we probably know who might not be able to do that. What skill or what experience do you feel like you had you must have a certain amount of emotional resilience. That must have been hard. Why do you think you were able to do that and not necessarily react in a way that other people might react? I don't know what the answer is, really, I guess. And you're right. And everybody is very different. Some people just can't work that way and are much more reactive. And there's a place for that 
for sure. I mean, there's a place for just instant exposure of situations. There isn't a place for being, you can't be on both sides of it. You can't be the one who's going to go to a place, take some photos and video footage one day, expose it the next day, and then expect, obviously, to knock on a door and, and have it open for you to help or provide some you know information or, or advice or support to change. So you kind of have to decide on which one you are. And, and I suppose for me and for Animals Asia, it's always been that side where, you know, we're not just going to be this big exposure of issues. We want to be the ones who are in there trying to actually solve them. But some people just can't do that. I don't know what it is. I guess it just comes down to individual personalities. I suppose for me, I've always kind of played a long game. I always kind of see it as a long game and, and don't want to instantly prevent that long-term aim being reached by reacting. But um, how that comes about, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't say there's any particular way of learning how to do that or any kind of training that you can go on to, to frame your mind in that way. I think it's just, it is just the way the way it is. And you, you just use a really good term there, emotional resilience, because yeah, you do have to have that. I mean, doing what I did then was emotionally draining. You know, I mean, we were literally going, we were spending weeks and weeks of just every single day. And some days we'd visit sort of three or four different circuses. On top of that, I was also visiting some of the animal markets as well, which just because we were there was a bit like, okay, well, there's animal markets here. You know, we should be documenting what's happening here. So this was sort of looking at the wildlife trade issues as well. And seeing some of the most horrendous things, unfortunately, both in terms of what was happening to animals in the markets, but also the treatment of animals in, in the circuses. And, and I guess you do have to have that resilience of kind of saying, OK, well, it doesn't help you as an individual for me to be reactive to this situation as, as the individual animals. Like, I don't have the ability now. So I see a bear cub being abused by somebody in a, for a circus show. I don't have any mechanism that I can put into place to remove that bear into sanctuary. Like there just isn't that mechanism. Going down that path is fruitless. It just won't work. And so you have to kind of say, I'm going to do something for you for the long term, or I'm going to prevent the next group of animals coming in suffering the way that you do. And, and so, yeah, you do have to put it into that bigger picture, I guess. And I've kind of had the ability to do that. And it is really the only way, I think, of working, particularly in places where you are trying to, what was 20 years ago, started from scratch, really, with regards to animal welfare and trying to sort of get public's opinions and consciousness about animal welfare into a position where you knew then something could change further down the line but yeah that was never going to happen overnight and it's still a long way off to where obviously we'd like it to be so there's still a lot of work that we need to do and, and to be on the inside we have to continue to work the way that we do to make sure that we've got the trust of the people that we're talking to. It's so interesting that you say that and you're describing the emotional resilience and the way that you approach things. And it's not necessarily that had any training on it or gave it any conscious thought. It's almost kind of innately who you are and looking at the long-term goals and what's achievable and what isn't. And getting outraged about something now doesn't actually help the situation necessarily. And it's interesting because my wife often asks me the same thing. Just last weekend, we were sitting down Saturday morning, we were having breakfast and then as soon as we finished breakfast, I had a couple of work things to do. I opened up the laptop and I was reading a report on a cat meat trade. And she was doing her own thing, but obviously she was glancing over at my computer and she 
stopped and said, I don't understand how you do this. Like we were having a nice breakfast and a nice conversation. And then 30 seconds later, you're reading this report about the cat meat trade. How do you Mm. balance those two things? And for me, I couldn't come up with a particularly compelling answer other than the fact, similar to what you said, is I'm looking at it from a from a perspective. I'm not looking at these images and being horrified by them. First of all, because I've seen far too many things like that to be surprised, but also because I'm putting into a perspective of by reading this report and working on the work that we do, we know that we're going to that consequentially something good is going to come out of it, that we're working in the direction so that one day a report like this won't have to exist anymore. And I think it's that kind of long-term mm. perspective that makes it more bearable to deal with the things that you have to deal with now. And maybe that's the thing that people sometimes don't understand is when you're confronted with something and you feel like you have no power over it, that's when it becomes emotionally devastating. But if you're in a situation where you feel that you may be able to affect change, even if it's a longer way down the line, then that's something that you can hold on to to make what you're dealing with just just bearable. Yeah, no, I agree, and 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 I, I know the situation that you you're referring to really, yeah, because it, it happens to me all the time, you know, in terms of my phone pings and and I look at it, and somebody has just visited a an animal market or something in Indonesia and is sending <laughs> me the pictures and the videos of animals being slaughtered, and I'm just kind of like looking at it, you know, obviously horrified by it, but also just able to look at it whilst you're kind of drinking a cup of coffee on a, on a Sunday morning. So yeah, and members of my family would say exactly the same. So. But yeah, it is that some reason it's that resilience and knowing that you are doing something and you're involved in it, I guess, just kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to put this into a part of my mind, which is never going to, it's never going to leave me, but it's going to kind of drive me to do better, Mm. I guess, you know, and to try to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Exactly. And I I guess um, one of the reasons I guess I have worked in that way is that I think from those initial meetings, you know, where you, in a certain sense, was probably a little bit naive going into some of those meetings where you kind of just thought by talking about some of the issues that these animals were facing, then people would instantly kind of understand and say, oh, yeah, I didn't really see it that way. Yes, we'll change the way that we operate. Kind of then opened my eyes, I guess, to people's understanding of animals in general and how I looked at animals very differently to how other people were looking at animals and then wanted to kind of say, well, okay, I I know I can't instantly change your opinion about this particular animal and the way that it's being treated, but to then say, well, maybe we should be looking more at the sort of role of education in how other people within the country, within China, within Vietnam, are growing up learning about animals because if I'm coming up against a block because what you see of animal welfare being that the animal in front of you is being fed and watered and is is alive and has been for maybe 10 years even though it's in a very poor condition and obviously psychologically it's suffering my understanding obviously is much different to that and so you can't turn that around overnight you can't turn that around by giving a presentation on what is animal welfare you need to bring these concepts into people's minds over a longer period of time and then bring these concepts into the minds obviously of young people as well and so you know that really is why I guess one I can kind of see that longer term game is is needed but also then is kind of led to another area of what I'm passionate about which is obviously sort of education and trying to sort of bring in these concepts of what makes an animal an animal into education. 
I love the um, materials that you produced a couple of years ago. The Just Like Us series of Animal Welfare and Understanding, I think, is just such a brilliant way of, of approaching that. And so for people that want to know more about it, do you want to just explain what that is, Dave? Because I absolutely love it. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, again, this kind of all ties in really in that, you know, after working for so many years on certain issues and yes, seeing some incremental changes, but also coming against these blocks in terms of being in conversations with facility owners or government officials where it's very clear that what you're talking about in terms of what animal welfare is, is not the same understanding that somebody else has of it because of the education that they've had and the background that they've had. And that doesn't just happen in China and Vietnam. It happens all over. And, you know, that happens here in the UK as well in terms of people just not having the same understanding, obviously. And so it kind of led me to look a little bit in terms of the way that we do our education. And I'm by no means an expert in education. And there's far more qualified people than myself, including yourself, Matt, in terms of how to carry out and design and deliver education messages to impact change. But the one thing that I did see was that from what I could see from sort of many of the organizations that I was working with was that a lot of our educational messages were very specific about the issue, talking specifically about how bad it was to have animals in zoos or how bad it is to have animals in circuses without really giving the background for people to maybe understand why we'd come to that conclusion. And so I sort of wanted to say, well, I think that the education, the messages that we need to deliver had to take a step back away from animal welfare and away from the issue specific and look at something which I would call sort of the animal concepts. And these were really looking at the emotional capacities of animals and the cognitive capabilities of animals and how important things like social bonds are for animals, how important things like parent-infant bond is for, for animals how important things like play is, for, particularly for young animals. And then by doing that, you relate that obviously to the way that we are and, and how important social bonds are for us and our relationships with our parents and grandparents, etc. And using that as a hook to get people interested in how those individuals' animals' minds might work and work in a similar way to ourselves. Now, that's not to sort of try to say all, all animals and people are thinking the same. Obviously, animals have evolved to live within their natural environment, which is very much different to our natural environment. But there are some sort of similarities which we can obviously pull out in terms of those relationships. And I think obviously now the huge body of research, which, you know, every single day we find out another species, the cognitive capacities of another species, um, another animal, and, and you know, we're kind of astounded by this. Whereas actually, I don't think we should be. I think the truth is, you know, many, many animals, if not all animals, are obviously going to be sharing these similar emotional experiences that we do. We're now beginning to prove it with the science and the research, which is exactly what's needed. But um, I think it's present in almost all animals. And it's just, for me, it was like, this is the sort of information I think we need to kind of go back to with our educational messages. So we need to be able to say, so if we're campaigning for, say, farm animals, going to somebody and saying how horrendous it is to keep a farm animal like a chicken in a battery cage or whatever is one thing and trying to get people to empathise on that level. But if you actually explain what a chicken is and what it feels and what it, what its emotional experiences are likely to be, and then show the reason why this animal might be suffering in that situation, I think that helps people to understand a lot better. 
So this kind of animal concepts idea is very much like a little bit removed from welfare and trying to sort of look at the species which maybe we're advocating on behalf of, such as bears and elephants and macaques, and, and actually get people to understand them better in terms of how their minds are, are working, just through the research which is already out there, trying to sort of popularise that, I guess, within schools or within the general public. And then hopefully people will be able to make that leap to say, well, yeah, maybe it's not right that this macaque is being forced to ride a bike and there's somebody there with a stick making sure that it does this because it's having a negative emotional experience for that animal because I've seen that these animals experience the world in a similar way to ourselves. And that was the Animal Chat podcast with Dave Neal of Animals Asia. Harry, that was a really good episode. It really was. Dave is so knowledgeable and it was such a good chat. It was I, What I really enjoyed talking to Dave about was the collaborative aspects of the work that he does and the challenges of working in, in China and Vietnam and dealing with all the different stakeholders. And, and like you said, and we've talked about before, it's that human behavior change element and being able to see beyond the immediate animal welfare issues and look at a long-term solution that sometimes puts you in an uncomfortable position and ends up you having to speak to people that you wouldn't necessarily want to or expect to. But in order to get to that long-term solution and address the issues, that's what you have to do. And it's something that Animals Asia does exceptionally well. They really do. Go check all the links that Dave Neal talked about. Go learn about Animals Asia and the amazing work. And why not go back and listen to our fantastic episode with founder Jill Robinson as well. They're not the only ones though, Harry. And I'm just, I was just thinking then, something that I admire about you is how humble you are when it comes to Change for Animals Foundation, the organisation that you found and are the CEO of. I just looked down on my phone and a post came up about Change for Animals Foundation and how you also work in Vietnam like Dave Neal. I've learned just now that you're working to end the cruel cat meat trade. What's this all about? I think we should use this podcast to promote your work, Harry. <laughs> well, we haven't done that before. No, never. Never. <laughs> you've, ca- you've got an investigation report. We worked in partnership with Four Paws International to do an investigation into the cat meat trade. And basically uncover the cruelty and all the all the shit that's involved in the cat meat trade mm. with the intention of trying to end it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I implore people to go and check your website. And you've got a number of things on there that people can get directly involved with. Absolutely. It's not a cheerful read. No. But it's a necessary read. And even if you don't want to read it, and you might not even want to look at the pictures, it's something that's happening. It's something that we need to end. And so, yeah, that's something yeah. that we're working on. So check it out. And next week, Harry, well, in two weeks' time, we've got yet another amazing guest and also somebody we know a little bit. We do. We do. We have the fantastic Melissa Leshevsky. We were so excited to have her on because we had such a fun time with her, talking to her about her career, really, and the amazing work she's done with companion animals mm-hmm. and equines in her illustrious career working in animal welfare. Yep. And I'm really inspired by Melissa. 
and her just her whole attitude and approach to work. It was a really fun chat talking to her. She's such a lovely person, so knowledgeable. And like you said, mm-hmm. she has a wealth of experience having worn a number of different hats, both for fashion and professional reasons. And she... <laughs> She and it was. I I didn't know what the fuck you were talking about there for a second. I was like, Melissa used to work in fashion. Like, what? What did I even listen to the podcast? Was I even listening when I was in it? Anyway, sorry. Action. She has a wealth of experience, and one of her main areas of work now is human behavior change, which is obviously something that you and I work a lot created. in. Created. We did what we created. Changing We're the human founders. Be- We're the founders We're the founders of founding fathers of human behavior change. Not human behavior change for animals, which is an actual organization, but the principle of human. The principle. Change. I know you're going to love this episode, everyone. You know, we, we can we ramble on sometimes about people. And Sometimes. how inspiration they are <laughs> and the work they've done. But Melissa, honestly, is just an awesome human being. And we had such good fun chatting to her. And people are going to really like this one. They are. So... We want people to, what do we want people to do, Matt? We always say this, and sometimes people do, and sometimes people don't. But what do we want them to do? Right, I want people to listen very carefully. I want you to, first of all, download it, obviously listen to it, download it, and then share it with friends and family, recommenders. If you're at the photocopier at work and someone says, hi, how are you? Just go, oh, I listened to a really good podcast yesterday. It's the Animal Chat podcast, and make them listen to it. If you're going out for tea with somebody with a mask on. Always wear a mask. Always wear a mask. And you're chatting, just make a little remark. Oh, have you listened to the Animal Chat podcast, the number one podcast? No? Well, listen to it. Yeah, folks, download it, like it, share it, listen to some of the other episodes we have. And just listen, share, enjoy, wear a mask, social distance, wash your hands, don't be a twat. Honestly, I'm inspired. (laughs) I'm inspired right now. And until two weeks' time, stay safe, like Harry said, and bye-bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.